Hey, good morning, and welcome to Sojourn. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as Eric said earlier, we're just uh, grateful to be able to gather together in this kind of time of celebrating Christmas. Uh, we wrapped up a sermon series last week that we've been in for several months. So today, we're really going to jump in and just in this Advent season, this anticipation of Christ's coming that we celebrate at Christmas, we're going to spend some time talking about that uh, and then kind of wrap that up on Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday, Christmas Eve, with the service in here. So just want to invite you to come to that. If this is your first time here, uh, just thankful that you're, you're here, that whether you came with a friend or a family or uh, that you just stumbled upon our church uh, by looking for somewhere to gather this morning. No matter where you're at uh, in your spiritual journey, we're thankful that you're here this morning. We're going to be in the book of Galatians this morning, and so if you need a Bible, if you just raise your hand, there'll be a couple of guys that'll bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning, so just keep your hand up till they find you, and know that that's our gift to you if you don't actually own a copy of the scriptures uh, that you can take that home with you. We want you to be able to have God's Word in your hand. So we're going to be in the book of Galatians, uh, and so let's go ahead and just flip over to Galatians chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to read uh, the first seven verses in Galatians chapter 4. So go ahead and find that. And this is the Apostle Paul uh, speaking, and so this is what he says to us this morning, starting in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for our time to be able to gather together this morning. It's a gift to us each and every week to be able to come and, and just be with our brothers and sisters, to come into this place, to worship you through song, to hear the reading of your word and now the preaching of your word. We pray, God, that you would use this time to help us be amazed. Help us stand in awe this morning. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see the beauty of what Paul is relating to us this morning. As we go into this week of Christmas, I pray that we would just be a people that are, that are amazed, that are so amazed that it leads us to worship, that it leads us just to, to fall to our knees, both literally and figuratively, to fall to our knees in worship of you, of who you are and what you've done, and to understand your love and your grace and your mercy that you've given us in and through Jesus. And so I just pray that you this morning, by the power of your Spirit, through the preaching of your Word, would draw each and every single one of us this morning closer to you. No matter where people are this morning, whether we are walking closely with you, whether we're very aware of your power and your presence in our lives, or if we're questioning whether you're even real. Father, I pray that you do a work this morning through the preaching of your word and the rest of our time gathered this morning to draw us closer to yourself. Help us to see the lavish grace that you give us. We pray even this morning that you lavish that grace upon us. And Holy Spirit, that you'd move in power today. We pray all this would be for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
If you've been around uh, Sojourn for a little while, you've probably heard me talk about my three kids, Owen, Isaac, and Emery. And if you've been around Sojourn for a little longer than a little while, uh, you've probably heard me talk about the reality that we weren't sure that we, Amy and I, would ever have biological kids. Uh, Amy and I were married in 2003, so we've been married for about 13 and a half years. And um, in 2003, so we wanted to have kids someday, but we wanted to wait a little while, uh, not have kids right away. We were 21 and 22 when we got married, and so we wanted just to wait a couple years and get used to figuring out what married life was all about before we actually started to uh, try to have kids and add to our family. So in around 2007, we decided, okay, we'd like to to grow our family and try and have some kids. And so we we started to try, and nothing happened. And we kept trying to get pregnant, and nothing happened. And we kept trying, and nothing happened. A year went by, and nothing happened. And so we decided, you know what, we should get some testing done just to see if there's something wrong, see what's going on here uh, medically to figure out if there's an issue. And so uh, we did that, and I still remember the day that we got a phone call from the doctor saying, Mr. and Mrs. Pearson, I, I have to tell you that you really only have about a 1% chance of getting pregnant on your own, apart from pretty drastic medical intervention. And it was drastic medical intervention that we just didn't feel ethically comfortable with. And so, man, that was a hard reality to hear. That was a hard reality for us as a, as a young couple to hear that really the chances for us to get pregnant on our own was, was pretty much non-existent. One percent is basically, you might as well just say zero. And so we cried and we prayed and we really were just going to the Lord just saying, Lord, I don't know what this means. I, I believe that the, the desire to have children is a good desire. It's a desire you've given us, and so we believe that. And, and we'd been interested in adoption as a family for, for a number of years at that point. Amy had been working at an adoption agency, and so we were like, well, I guess uh, this is clearly then God's plan for us to grow our family through adoption. And so we began to walk down that road. Another year went by, and we started to think through, man, what does God want us to do? I'd been working in full-time ministry for a number of years, and we were just trying to pray and think about what God wanted for us and what he wanted us to be doing with our lives. And and we started to consider what would it look like for us to move out of the area to go finish up seminary. And so we prayed about it, and we were just thinking, do we move to Louisville, Kentucky to finish up school at, at Southern Seminary? And we thought, man, this is probably a good time to do this. We don't have any kids, so it's easy for us to do that. And we found somebody to rent our house out. And uh, Amy's uh, employer told her that she could continue to work full-time just remotely from Kentucky. And so it seemed like all these pieces were falling into place for us to, to move and finish up seminary. So in 2009, I quit my job at the church I was working at. We packed up all of our stuff, and we headed west to Louisville. We got settled into our apartment. Classes hadn't started yet. But about a week after we got there, Amy said, hey, um, I think I might need to take a pregnancy test. And I said, hold on a second. We just reduced our income pretty significantly, and uh, pregnancy tests are expensive. <laughs> and we had taken pregnancy tests before, and they always came back negative, so I made her wait. And so we waited a little bit longer, but then I started to get curious. And so I said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's go take a pregnancy test. And so on August 3rd, 2009, she took a pregnancy test, and it came back positive. So we're like, we should, let's take another one um, <laughs> to figure out if this is real, you know. And so she took another one. It came back positive, and she was pregnant with our son, Owen. Now, this morning, you may be thinking, why in the world are you telling me all this? What's the point of all this? The point is this, because God always knows what he's doing. God always knows what he's doing. He always understands. He always has a plan. He always has a purpose for every single thing that's going on in your life that's going on in our lives. 
And see, if we had not struggled with infertility, if we had had kids on our own when we wanted to, in our timing, when we thought this was the best time, it is very, very likely that we would not be sitting here this morning. That this church would not exist. That you'd be somewhere else this morning, not in a cafetorium of a middle school in Fairfax, Virginia. That, that's a very distinct possibility because the reality is, I don't think we would have moved to Louisville if we already had kids. I don't think we would have gone, and if we hadn't moved to Louisville, then we wouldn't have been a part of the church that we were a part of while we, there, while we were there, which was such a, a formative time in our life and in our ministry to be in that church, to learn and grow. We talked oftentimes that we went there to get a, continue my seminary education, but really what we went there for was to be a part of this local church there. We learned more in that church in those two years probably than all, so much combined of what we learned while in class and in seminary. And it was in that church that different pastors and elders and leaders in that church continue to encourage and challenge us and affirm that we should move back to Northern Virginia to plant a church. It's part of the reason we went there is trying to figure out, does God want us to do this or not? But if we had never gone, I don't know that we would have done that. I don't know if we'd be here. We wouldn't have been impacted in that way to plant this church. See, God's timing is not our timing. God's will is perfect. God's timing is perfect in our lives, even when it comes through difficulty and trial. So God led us through this season of difficulty, led us through this season of trial but then we can step back now, looking back kind of retrospectively and see that God was at work. God was doing something in our life. And by doing something in our life, I hope that means he's doing something in your life because you're sitting here this morning. That this church has an, had an impact on your life. That the community that you're a part of and hearing the gospel preached and applied to your life has been impactful. But that came through our own life of trial and difficulty Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City, earlier this year tweeted this out. He said, God's sense of timing will always confound ours. His grace rarely operates according to our schedule. And so today I want to jump into this text that I just read as we head into this Christmas week, this Christmas season, because I think it's a really comforting text. It's a, it's a really encouraging and needed text. As I was even studying it this week, it was, it was refreshing to me just to have it kind of wash over my own heart, my own soul, to encourage me. And so my hope this morning is it'll do the same for you. As we get into this and really start to understand what Paul's talking about here in Galatians 4, that you'll be encouraged, that God would help you to see with new eyes, with fresh eyes, Eyes of awe and wonder at the love of our Father, the love that He's given to us in the fullness of time. So, with that, let's get to it. And may God bless the preaching of His Word this morning. I read verses 1 through 7, but where we're really going to kind of start and focus is the pinnacle of this text, and that's really verse 4. If you think of a tent, verse 4 is kind of the tent peg of this text. It's kind of the, the main focal point of what Paul's saying here in these seven verses. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break this sermon down into two main points, kind of revolving around verse 4 specifically. In our two main points, we're just going to use our kind of everyday investigative questions. So our first point is who and what, and our second point is where, when, and why. Who and what, and where, when, and why. So what's the who and what of this text? 
There's a few players in this text, a few characters, a few people that we see in this text. We have the father, we have the son, we have the woman, and we have those who are under the law. The father, the son, the woman, and those who are under the law. And all of these characters, all these people, these players in this text are important, but the son is the most primary focal point, the the main character in this narrative. We see that because we see God, the father, sent his son. Mary, the woman, birthed the son. All of humanity, those under the law, are redeemed by the son. All of these people, all these other players in this story here, in this narrative that Paul's relating to us, all revolve around the son. And so what we see in this text is that the son is preeminent. He's preeminent. We see that in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says there that, that the son, that Jesus is preeminent. But something I don't want us to miss here is this text also shows us that Jesus is preexistent. He's not only preeminent, he's also preexistent. See, Jesus is already the Son. He existed as the Son for all eternity as a part of the Trinity, our God three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what we need to see here is that Jesus being sent, Jesus being born, doesn't make him the Son. He's already the Son. What Paul's relating to us here is not about his function, but his being. It's not about his function, but his being, who he is and always has been the second person of the Trinity. And so we see God sent his eternal Son, and this Son, though, was born of woman, This is really important for us to understand here. This is kind of a a theological uh, uh, focal point here, but I I want us to wrap our minds around, at least try to, this reality that the statement that he is sent by God relates to his deity, to his divinity. What this is telling us then is the eternal son of God, that he is a hundred percent God. He's existed for all eternity as God, as a part of the Trinity. But at the very same time, the statement that he's born of woman relates to his humanity. So we can also say that Jesus is 100% human. Now you're going, well, 100% and 100%, how do we, how do we figure that out? Um, I don't know. It's a mystery, right? It, we, we, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the reality that, that what is true of Jesus is that he is 100% God and at the very same time, 100% man. And so while we in our finiteness can't wrap our minds around that, can't fully understand that, it's absolutely necessary to the work that Jesus comes to do. And we'll come back to why in just a minute. Paul also says, though, that Jesus, the Son, was sent to do something. This is kind of the what. What was he sent to do? He was sent to redeem those under the law. So who's Paul talking about here? When he says those under the law, who is he talking about? The reality is he's talking about all of us. Every last person who ever has lived, is currently living, or will live. And what he says about every last person is that we are all either currently enslaved or were at one point enslaved. Let's look back at verses 1 through 3 again. Paul says in verses 1 through 3, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
A child who has an inheritance often does not have access to those resources, doesn't have access uh, to that inheritance until a later point in time. And so Paul's point here is that, well, then he's pretty much then like a slave. He's pretty much like a, a servant in the household. He doesn't have power on his own. And so Paul says then that we were like that. We were just like that. We had no power on our own. We were enslaved to these elementary principles of the world, unable on our own to release ourselves from that enslavement. These elementary principles of the world are are the laws and the standards and the spiritual powers and the non-gods that all of us follow. Whatever those things happen to be, all of us at some point in time, wrestle with this reality of following what we could call a non-God. It could be people. It could be things. It could be a false deity, a false God. Whatever it is, we, we have this temptation to follow these false gods and the laws and the standards that go along with that. All of us are born into this world, enslaved to the things of this world. We're blinded by our sin. We're blinded from our understanding of our need. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul there says this, in their case, talking about those who are enslaved, the God of this world, who's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's Satan's chief aim in every single person's life, is to blind you of your need for Jesus to distract you, to discourage you, to redirect you, to never see the reality of your desperate need for Jesus. He exploits our sin and he blinds our hearts to our need for rescue and redemption. This past week, I was reading in uh, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. Amy and I are doing this, uh, this thing called community Bible reading. It's kind of a, a daily plan to be in the Word. And so we were reading in Revelation chapter 12, and it's an interesting text. It's not real long, but it talks about this woman giving birth to this child. But there's this dragon. It says this dragon is there waiting to devour this child, but he, he escapes the, the clutches of this dragon. But that dragon, it says, makes war, makes war against the people that Jesus came for. He makes war. He stands before the Father night and day accusing God's people. And he seeks to make war against them. He's making war to blind you right now. He's making war to blind me. He's making war to blind our neighbors. He's making war to blind the nations of their need for Jesus from seeing that we are not actually free, but enslaved and captive. And if enslaved and captive, then dying and dead apart from Christ. Now, if you're reading this text in Galatians 4 and we're talking about the law here, you may think, wait a minute, this is just about the Jewish people then, right? Because they're the ones that received the law. Moses went up on Mount Sinai. He received the law from God to govern his people about how they should live in relation to him. And so this must just be for the Jewish people. It doesn't include everybody else. Well, it does include the Jewish people, but it goes far beyond that. Because see, the Galatian people that Paul is writing to are not Jewish by heritage, And so Paul's writing to them, and this is the Bible. It's God's word, his inspired word given to all the church. So it's for you and for me as well. And so he's talking to all of us. Because see, the reality is we are all enslaved, even if we've never heard the law of God. And the reason for that is this, because all of us are desperately trying to live up to something. We're trying to live up to something, some law, some standard, even if it's self-imposed. 
If we reject the way of God, we still have our own conduct and standards that we seek to abide by. Maybe we've created those. Maybe we've imported them from somewhere else. But all of us are trying to live up to something. And the reality is that makes us anxious in life. It gives us burdens. We feel weighed down by that because even our self-imposed standards, we're never quite able to live up to them perfectly. And so elementary principles might be the law if you're a religious person or whatever law or moral code you live by if you're not religious. But the end result is always the same. Whether you're religious or irreligious, the end is the same. Enslavement. Enslavement. And this brings us back to Jesus. As God, he was able to rescue and redeem an enslaved people. And as man, he was able to live a perfect life of obedience to the righteous requirements of the law. His very birth placed him under subjection to the law. So Paul says, he says, he was sent by God, born of woman, born under the law. He's born into this world just like you and me. He has these, these laws, this perfection that he's called to just like you and me. That's so important for us to understand because that's the way that he's able to also be our redeemer. One scholar says this about all of this, about Jesus. He says, so the divinity of Christ, the fact that he's God, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, perfect in all his ways, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. If he, had, if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. Simply put, there is no salvation apart from the reality that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. So that's the who and the what of this text. But that leads to our next set of investigative questions here. The where, the when, and ultimately the Why? Now, this text doesn't talk uh, explicitly about the where, about the location of all this happening, but we can look through the scriptures, specifically the gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see that this took place in the town of Bethlehem. And we see that, that the prophets had, had predicted this. As Eric read earlier from Isaiah chapter 7, we can go back to the Old Testament in various places, see that the prophets, God's messengers, said a Messiah is coming. This is who he is. This is what he's going to be like. This is where he's even going to be born. And Micah chapter 5 is one of those places. In Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, and there's a weird word after that that's hard to pronounce. This is Ephrathra. O Bethlehem, who are, you, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is talking about Jesus. It was written hundreds of years before Christ was born, before Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. 
So, the Be- so Bethlehem is the where, but then we have this, this when. When did this actually take place? What was the purpose of that? And, and many scholars over the years have tried to articulate, well, this is why this happened at this point in time. This is when, it's, when, when Paul says the fullness of time. Let me tell you why it's the fullness of time. This is the perfect time for Jesus to be born. They've tried to explain why it's the perfect time in the perfect place. But listen, determining the exact purpose for why that is, is really a pointless endeavor because it's not the point. The point is, in all of this, is that God is God and we are not. That in God's timing, in God's will, in God's preordained desire and, and plan for and purpose for all of humanity, this was when it needed to happen. We go back to verses 1 through 3 again. We see God created a perfect and good world. He created a perfect and good world, and in doing so, the pinnacle of his creation was creating man and woman in his image. Man and woman is image to display his glory, to have dominion over his creation. In creating them, he gave them the ability then to obey or not obey because through this, he would get more glory. Through this, he'd be able to, to get more praise, more glory. But what happened is our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to reject the kingship of their creator God. They chose enslavement instead, believing that they would be fine on their own. This is what we call sin. It's what we call sin, and sin results in death, both physical and spiritual death, separation from God, and the destruction and the decaying of our own bodies. But in the midst of that, God promised it would not always be this way, that he would reverse the curse of sin by sending his son. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to Satan who's lured Adam and Eve away from obedience, away from the worship of God to the worship of self. And this is what he says to him. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You can picture a snake, right? I mean, a snake can bite. And so he's had this picture. You're going to try and bite at his heel, but he's literally going to stomp on your head. He's going to stomp. You're going to be ended through this seed of this woman, this, this offspring. See, God and his sovereign will determined that this was the right time. This was the perfect time and the perfect place to do what he said he was going to do, that the seed of Eve would crush the head of that slithery, sin-exploiting serpent. And so Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Until that time, we needed stewardship, we needed guardianship, we needed guides, and so God gave us the law And what the law did was never meant to be our salvation. It was never meant to be our inheritance. What the law did is pointed us out to the reality that we needed a redeemer. We needed someone else to stand in our place because we could never live up to the perfect holy standards of a holy God. In Galatians chapter 3, just a few verses earlier from where we read, Paul says this, verses 23 through 26. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law was always meant to be a temporary guide to point us to Christ until Christ came. But all this begs the bigger question, why? 
Why did he do this? Why in this specific way? As I mentioned earlier, we have three kids, and a few years ago, Amy and I thought it was important for us to, uh, to have a will, to, to have a legal document that says what would happen to our kids should something happen to us, who would take care of them, and, and how would they be taken care of. And so we sat down with a lawyer, and we put all that together, and there's really two parts to it. There's guardianship, and there's trustee. So we could have a, a someone take care of our kids in a physical way, but the trustee is the one who manages the resources that we would have left to our children should something happen to us, and it manages those until the appropriate time for them to be able to access that. And so we had to actually set their age for that. And each kid individually say, when they're X amount of years old, should something happen to us, that's when they get all of these resources. But until that point in time, there's someone else managing it for them. And so it could be any age. It was completely up to us, 18, 21, 25, 35. We could tell one kid he gets it at 21 and the other one at 35. For whatever reasons that we wanted to, we could determine that. We said it as loving parents. We thought about our kids, what we believed to be best for them, and said it for that to happen at that point in time. And they may never know why, but they know who. They knew who made that decision. And they can rest in the fact that we, as their mom and dad, because we love them so much, had their best interest in mind in how we did that. See, God sent forth his promised son in the fullness of time, the exact, right, perfect, purposed, precise time. It wasn't too early and it wasn't too late. It was right when it was supposed to happen. See, God's people had been longing, they'd been waiting, expecting, looking for that Messiah. Eric said it was 700 years since Isaiah made that prophecy about the Redeemer coming, about Emmanuel, God with us, coming. Other prophecies, hundreds of years passed. The prophets conclude in the Old Testament, and there's really 400 years of silence that God doesn't speak to his, through his prophets to any of his people. And so there's this longing, this anticipation for the Redeemer to come. But a time was set. But that time was not set arbitrarily. It wasn't like, I guess now's okay. No, before the foundation of the world God set this time. He set the time for redemption to come in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And redemption came. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. But something I want us to notice here in this analogy, if we look at this, all these verses, verses four through seven, specifically the first few verses here, is that we were not sons. We were not sons. We were slaves. We were slaves, each and every one of us. He didn't say you already knew God and you just had to wait for a little while. He said you're you're enslaved. You're literally not just like a slave. You are a slave. But out of love, God's redemption of us through his son meant our adoption into his family as his sons. Look at verses four through seven again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, something we can't miss in the midst of all this is that the son of God is being identified with those he came to redeem. He's being identified with them in every way. Christ the Son became human so that humans can become sons. 
And Christ became a slave to the law so that we might be set free from the law. Now you may be looking at this, if, especially if you're a, a lady here today, you may think, well, hey, what's just about sons? This is about guys? Like, what about me? But this isn't a sexist statement. Paul's not trying to be, um, just focus on men or anything like that, contrary to what others will say about this text. There's something deeper to this. The reality is, is this is for male and female, men and women. What he's trying to get to here is that in this ancient, these ancient days, the son, the firstborn son, was the one who got all the inheritance, who got the majority of the inheritance. So what he's saying to you, both men and women, is that you are like that. You are sons. You are going to get an inheritance because I've sent my son to you. He is the heir of all things, but now you will be co-heirs with him. Through Christ, you're no longer slaves, but sons, and if sons, then heirs. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. That is the why of Christmas. That's the why of Christ's coming. Is it so you and I can be adopted into God's family as sons and have the inheritance of the king and his kingdom. You might be sitting here this morning, though, and thinking, wait, hold on a second, though. This seems a little bit too good to be true because you, you don't know about me. You don't know about my life. You don't know about the things I've done. You don't know about my Wait, I've even cursed God, and, I, and I'm not even sure if God's real or even exists, and I, you, you, just don't, you just don't know. And you're right, I don't know everything about every single person in this room, but God does. He knows you from top to bottom, inside and out, every single thing about you. And while that can be a terrifying thing, I hope it's a hopeful thing. Because knowing all of that about you, he sent his son for you. And he declares to you now, being fully known, every single thing about you, that through his son, you are made clean or can be made clean. And so he says, come. Come to me. Come into my presence. Come into my house. Come to, into my family. Come to my table. Come. He showed his love for you by sending his son to you in the fullness of time, right when you needed him. Right when you needed him. See, the reality is we are all enslaved to non-gods and their laws and rules. But all that amounts to is death upon death. But in Christ, in Jesus, he sets us free from this and he calls us to follow him, to be fully known and fully loved. And then that is grace upon grace. See, redemption for the enslaved is possible because Christ bore the full obligation of the law in life as well as the curse of law in death. If you go back a little bit earlier in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, He who is hangs on a tree is cursed. When Jesus was nailed to a cross, God poured out his righteous wrath on Christ. He willingly took that on his back for you and for me. He took all of our sin, all of our shame. So when we talk about the fullness of time, it's not even so much really that it's the perfect time for Christ to come, but that when Christ came, it ushered in the fullness of time. It ended the tyranny of sin and brought about a new humanity. That's why it's the fullness of time. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In the full, it's the fullness of time because we were like children, unable to rescue ourselves, weak, dead but the date of our freedom was set and our adoption came through and god did it all of it from beginning to end god did it he didn't send a stand-in he didn't tell us to figure it out on our own to find our way back to him he 
sent his one and only son. Man, he didn't do it in the way that we'd expect. He didn't come in chariots or with armies. He didn't come in full regalia or any regalia at all for that matter. He didn't come with parades and pomp. He had to come to us as one of us in order to rescue us, to take on humanity in the ultimate display of humility. He came as a child, the weakest of all of creation, of God's image bears. He came as a child, born of a woman, born under the law, and in humble circumstances for that matter. Born not in nice Innova Fairfax Hospital. Born in a stable. In humble circumstances. His parents had nothing. He's born into this humble circumstance, these difficult circumstances, so that he could relate to you and relate to me. And so we can press a bit deeper into the why and say, why do we talk about this? Why am I bringing this up now at Christmas? Because see, the reality is the perfect time of com- the coming of Christ, at the perfect time, it's really about your life with him or your life apart from him. And when we think about Christmas, that's what we should think about. Life with Jesus or life apart from Jesus. See, the possibility of and the beginning of our new birth came when Christ was birthed into this world to redeem and to rescue and to reconcile. Because we remember apart from him, you and I are dead. We're enslaved to our sin. So in view here in this text, it's more than just his birth. It's more than just his birth. It's not less than that, but it's definitely more than that. When we read this text about the birth of Christ, about him coming into the world, as we think about Christmas, it's about his advent. It's about his coming. But it's also about the cross. And it's also about his triumph over the grave. See, the two biggest days that the, that the church celebrates each year are Easter and Christmas. But here's the deal. There is no Easter without Christmas. There's no Easter without Christmas, but at the very same time, we cannot look at or celebrate Christmas without thinking about Easter as well. It's not about cute, cuddly baby Jesus. Right? I think sometimes we can get Christmas, like, oh man, baby Jesus. But he had soft cheeks and soft hair. You know, what's the song, Away in the Manger? He didn't even cry. Moms and dads are like, yes. That's why I like Jesus. No, it's not just about cute, cuddly baby Jesus. It's about King Jesus. King Jesus who would come to redeem his people, to live the life that you and I couldn't live, to go to the cross for you in your place. And so as we reflect on and celebrate the birth of Christ at this time of year, we can go back to the truth of Galatians 4 and stand amazed to see the fullness of time come to fruition in all that Christ came to do. We can be reminded of that similar reality that Paul proclaims in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul there says, and we've talked about this recently, we preached on this recently, which is so good for us to come back to over and over and over again, the reality of Christ's coming. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Just like you, just like me. He sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
See, when we think about Christmas, when we think about the first birth of Christ, it's a testimony to freedom, present freedom for your life. When you think about Jesus coming into this world, you should think, man, I'm set free then. I'm set free from sin. I'm set free from the punishment of sin. I'm set free from the power of sin in my life. I'm set free from shame. I'm set free to enjoy all the gifts and all the pleasures of being known by the Father and loved by the Father. And Christmas is a reminder that you could not remedy your eternal predicament. You couldn't do it. Your sin deserved death. And there was no way to get out of it on your own, no matter how hard you tried. Whether you're seeking to follow the law of God or your own self-imposed rules and laws to life, there's no way for you to get out of that eternal predicament. But Christmas is a reminder. It's a reminder that the remedy came into this world just like you did so that he could bring you into the presence of his Father just like he always had. But the problem is, even if you're a follower of Christ— even as believers, sometimes we forget the significance of the birth of Christ that Paul outlines for us here in Galatians 4. We forget it because we struggle. We can struggle in life. We have difficulties and, and brokenness that we experience. Maybe you struggle with infertility. Maybe you're struggling right now with chronic sickness or disease. Maybe you're struggling with unemployment or a lack of resources. Maybe you're just struggling with loneliness in life right now. You're struggling right now because you're not getting what you want when you want it. The word gospel means good news. It means good news. And in this world, there are a lot of promoters of good news. They'll tell you, this is the best news. This is the good news. Come listen to my news. But see, when life is challenging, we can struggle to sift through the myriad of gospels that are presented to us to actually grasp onto the one that's actually true. And when we struggle with this, when we're struggling in life, we can be tempted to lay down the gospel of the manger and pick up the gospel of the North Pole. We can struggle. We say, I'm not sure about this. And so instead of resting in the reality that we are sons, male and female are sons, we're, we receive this inheritance. We have a great inheritance, God himself, in all the joys of his eternal kingdom. Instead, we find ourselves coming to sit on the leg or the lap of a fat man in a red suit to tell him everything that we want, everything that we so desperately need that we can't live without. And his response to us is this, okay, but you better not screw it up. You better behave. You better be good. And then maybe I'll bless you. You see that when we're struggling, we grasp onto that instead of going back to the gospel of the manger. Listen, when you are wrestling, when you are struggling in faith, if right now you are wrestling or struggling in your faith, if you're, if you're uncertain, if you're fearful, if you're afraid, if you're unsure, look to the manger that points to the cross that leads to the empty tomb. And be reminded in that. Allow that truth to resonate over your life that what it speaks to you, what it says to you is that your Father loves you. He loves you. Not because you clean yourself up. Not because you did lots of good things. He displayed His love for you in all of your mess just because that's who He is. See, at Christmas, what we celebrate, what we party for is that in the fullness of time, Christ came. He came for us. 
the birth of our brother, the birth of our savior, the birth of our king. At the end of Galatians 3, it says that the good news of the manger, the good news of the cross, the good news of the empty tomb, the good news of adoption is for anyone, men and women, all ages, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic statuses, all can be heirs through Christ. There's no other requirement for you except to come. And Christ came in the fullness of time to make our adoption into his family, into the family of God possible. And so maybe that fullness of time is for you today. Maybe today's the day. Maybe you've never truly placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you've known about Jesus, but you haven't actually known him. You've, you've kind of kept him at an arm's length. And if that's you, I just want you to hear the invitation to come into the family of God by placing your faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was born into this world just like you, who lived the life that you could not live and died a death in your place, the death that you deserve to die. Would you come to him and place your faith in him? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Here at Sojourn, we put no obstacle in your way. No obstacle in your way but simply invite you today to come to the Father through his Son. Listen, friends, when Jesus was born, it was through difficulty and trial. Through difficulty and trial. Childbirth in and of itself is difficult. But in his circumstances, difficulty and trial. But that's exactly what God planned and intended. And at some level right now, in each and every one of our lives, we're, we're experiencing difficulty. We're experiencing heartache. At varying degrees, because all of us live in the same broken world. So some way, shape, or form, we're experiencing that right now. But even in that, I want you to know this and see this from this text. Be reminded from this text that God is at work. God is at work to bring about a redemptive work in his perfect timing, according to his perfect plan. We may not know the what or the why or the how of what he's doing, but we can look to the manger this Christmas and see the proof that God's ways are not our ways and that he is faithful and true. So cry out to your father. Cry out to him. That's why he sends the spirit to us as his sons. He doesn't send the Holy Spirit to make us his sons. Or be- he gives us the Holy Spirit because we are his sons to help us and assure us and remind us of the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. See, your identity with God is not primarily servant. It's not primarily slave. It's adopted son child. You are heirs, which means you are loved and you're accepted and you're redeemed because of Christ. So receive that and rest in the affections that your father has for you and may that stir your affections for him. He gets all the glory and we get all of grace and it all came in the fullness of time. We're going to come to the communion table now to celebrate. We're going to eat a meal of our king and his people But just as Jesus was born into humble circumstances, so this is a humble meal. See, in this meal, it's meant to fill you you spiritually, but at the same time, leave you longing for more. Longing for more, more of what it symbolizes. As you eat the bread, you're remembering and reminded of the fact that, that Christ's body was broken for you. And as you drink the cup, you're reminded of the fact that Christ's blood was shed for you. So I want to invite you to the table this morning to eat and drink and be refreshed and reminded that God purposed to adopt you into his family before the foundation of the world. 
that through his son you are no longer a slave but, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. And that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places belong to you. In him you have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sin, and new life now and forever. So come this morning and eat and drink. Come this morning and celebrate that Christ has come in the fullness of time. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I would just ask you just to hang out in your seat. This meal is a meal of God's people. It's a meal, a declaration that we believe everything about what, what I just said, that Jesus is who he says he is, and he came to do what he came, said he came to do. And if you're not at that place yet of placing your faith in Christ, then I just want to ask you to hang out in your seat, but I do want to ask you and, and call you again to place your faith in Jesus. Don't eat the bread in the cup today. Take Jesus today. Place your faith in him today and tell somebody about that. I mean, what a, what a great gift of grace that at Christmas that you would receive the grace of God. So let somebody know that today. We want to journey with you in that. We want to walk with you in that. We'd love to pray with you today. And then next week, in the coming weeks, you can come forward with us as a new brother, a new sister in Christ, adopted into the family of God. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or to the back, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and listen to what Jesus has done for you, be spoken over you today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray, we pray very simply that you would enable us as your people to rest in the reality of the who and the what and the when and the where and the why of Galatians 4. And we pray that as we head into this week of Christmas that you would help us to focus on the gospel of the manger which points to the cross which leads us to an empty tomb. Help us to to set aside distractions and other things maybe going on in our life and to trust that you are good and that you are sovereign over all things, that you are providential in our lives. And that we can be reminded of that as we see that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son to rescue us and redeem us. So Father, I pray that you'd make us a worshiping people this week. As we think about Christmas, we wouldn't just focus on the reality of, of Jesus being born, but we would see the full picture of all that that means for all of us and all the world, for all eternity. Encourage our hearts. Call us to repentance and faith as we walk out of here today in the coming days. May we celebrate the goodness, the display of your love for us and Christ coming to us. We love you. We thank you for your deep, unfathomable love for us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.